Children love to play games. And while generations may change and there's technological advances that take place and the character of the games might be different, you know, when they don't have all of the um, available electronic gadgets, they still find ways to play games. You know, it might be something like cops and robbers or um, playing soldiers, playing cowboys and Indians. Since we're in Texas, we might as well bring that up. But I've also noticed that, especially in Christian circles, um, for watching two generations now of children, sometimes they play, tend to play a game of church. Uh, playing church. And so some sing and lead the singing. Some preach or teach, give a message. They're playing church. And while that's all well and good, it reminded me of the fact that sometimes when people grow up, they're just like children playing church. There really isn't much different. You know, and for us to sit and think about you know, why is it we come together? What is it we're doing? What is it that we should anticipate and expect? And if you start reading and looking at what people say, there are a number of individuals that have a variety of opinions on what it means to be a church, to quote-unquote do church, and sometimes it falls into the category of just playing church. Some individuals say, well, you know, we're a New Testament church. Well, the reality is if we're a church, we're a New Testament church. There is not an Old Testament church or a beyond New Testament church. Ever since the day of Pentecost, every church has been a New Testament church. And what we try to find is, what does God say in his word is to be true of the church? And I think that's especially significant in the fact that you remember what Jesus Christ told his disciples, and we even alluded to that last week, where he said, I will build my church. Now, if the focus of Jesus Christ is on building his church, what is our calling? as members of his body and as part of this called out assembly that you and I think of as the church. Some would say that what's really important when we look at the church is certain tasks that the church is given to do. Others would say, well, it has to do with certain spiritual gifts that individuals have and how they should exercise them. Other places would say, well, the study of the word and the preaching of the word, that's what is really foundational. And while we need to look at these different aspects of it, every one of these concepts really falls short of what is our calling as individual believers and as members of the church. 
And to establish that calling, I'd like you to go with me to the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, we know that John wrote this um, book for the purpose of presenting Christ as the only hope and foundation for one's acceptance with God. At the end of the book, he made it very clear. I've written this for the purpose of evangelism, right? He says there's many other things that Jesus did in the presence of witnesses, but these have been written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ and that in believing you can have life through his name. It's an evangelistic type of book. And when we read through the book of John, we find that John has a lot to say about Jesus and very little to say about himself. And the point is, is that if we're talking about the church and if we're talking about evangelism, if we're talking about any aspect of the church's ministry, the real focus is Jesus Christ. And John includes a number of incidents in the life, the earthly life of Jesus Christ to help us understand more of who he is, the sufficiency of him being the object of our faith, and what it is that he came to accomplish. Chapter 4 primarily deals with an interaction that he has with a woman at Sychar in Samaria, a woman at Jacob's well. And while the disciples are on their way into Sychar to find provisions for their needs, Jesus is resting by the well, and this woman comes up to draw water. And as she does, he says, would you give me a drink? And immediately she's taken back. How is it that you a Jew would even speak to me a Samaritan. And John makes sure we understand why that question arrested her because he said, because the Jews have no dealing with the Samaritans. They shunned them. They wanted nothing to do with them. In fact, Samaria was almost a forbidden territory for the Jews to travel. If they were leaving Jerusalem and wanted to go to Galilee, they would often cross over the Jordan River, go up on the east side of the Jordan River, just to be sure they didn't need to pass through Samaria. But in John 4, it says Jesus must go through Samaria. You know why? He had a divine appointment with a woman at the well, and he initiated the discussion. And when she uh, said, how is it that you, a Jew, would ask of me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? He responded by saying, if you knew who it was that asked you for the drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. And then she's even more perplexed. What? You don't even have a bucket, a jar, anything to lower into the well to bring up water. And Jesus told her, the water I'm speaking of springs up unto eternal life. And so she says, oh, Lord, give me this water so that I don't have to come here again to get water. And Christ said, well, call your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you're right. You say you don't have a husband. 
You had five husbands, and the one you're now living with is not your husband. And this, you said correctly, you don't have a husband. I perceive you're a prophet. Something unique. Do you see the road he's taking her down? And so she says, well, you know, our father said we ought to worship in this mountain. That's Mount Gerizim. And if you remember back in the Old Testament when the Israelites were brought into the land, God had told them that half the tribes were to be on Mount Ebal and the other half were to be on Mount Gerizim and the great valley amphitheater between them and the one side would shout out the blessings and the other side the curses that would come for disobedience. And Mount Gerizim is the mountain upon which the blessings were pronounced for the obedience to the law given through Moses. Our fathers said we should worship on this mountain, but you Jews say it's in Jerusalem that we need to worship. Now we find what Christ had to say. Look with me in verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We, that is the Jews, worship that which we know for salvation. And sadly, the definite article in the Greek text is not included, at least in my English translation. It should say, you worship what you do not know. We worship that which we know for the salvation is ek, exit, out of the Jews. It's sourced from them. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such people to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am who is speaking to you. He identified himself as that promised Messiah. So in this discussion, we find that John writing this account made it very clear that Jesus was providing her with the information associated with having faith in him and by having that faith in him being the recipient of eternal life. And in the midst of it, the discussion centers on worship. And Christ didn't rebuke her and say, let's not get away from what you're convicted of now and start talking about worship. You'll notice Christ continued the discussion of worship to clarify for her, to correct her in order that she would understand the real concept of worship Because worship is central. Worship is foundational. What is it the Father is seeking? True worshipers. What is the calling of the church? 
What is most essential and important for the New Testament church? Not busy doing things, but worshiping. Worshiping God. Worshiping the Father. Glorifying Jesus Christ as the one who brings us to the Father. So notice what he says. He begins by saying, woman, believe me. In other words, Christ saying, pay close attention to what I'm saying. I am not just giving you an aside or something that is irrelevant. I'm talking about what is most essential. Pay close attention to it. And the first thing he says is, You aren't sure what you're worshiping. Now, they had their worship services, their rituals they performed. They were a very religious people. And if you are somewhat familiar with the Old Testament, you will recognize the reason the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans is the Samaritans were a mixture of some Jews and a multitude of different Gentiles because the practice of the Assyrians when they conquered a people was to take individuals out of their homeland and move them into another place of their empire and then to transport other individuals back into that land so there could be no patriotism, no uprising against the rule of the Assyrian government. And so when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC, it became a mixed group. Now part of that goes all the way back to what was established by both Ahab and Jeroboam. And that is out of fear that the northern tribes would go back to Jerusalem to worship, they designated a place in the northern kingdom where the ten tribes were to worship so they wouldn't realign themselves with the Davidic throne and the southern kingdom. So what did they have? Well, they had the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, And in the Pentateuch, it just said that they were to worship in the place that God designates. And what tradition had established for them was that they were to worship on Mount Gerizim, the place of blessing. And so Christ is correcting her concerning their conception of worship. He says that while... Both groups had revelation. The full or complete revelation was found where? With the Jews. And in the Jewish scriptures, in what you and I now know of as the Old Testament, God made it very clear what is required for an individual to be acceptable to him and to offer him acceptable worship. I mean, just a cursory look at the Old Testament, doesn't it show to us, no matter how well-meaning and sincere an individual may be, that doesn't constitute acceptable worship. 
Let's go right to the get-go. You have two young boys, Cain and Abel. Both are very sincere and both go through the same action. They bring an offering to the Lord. God accepts the offering of Abel. He does not accept the offering of Cain. Now, part of the problem is it's not a faith. And you might say, well, what does it mean when it says it's not a faith? Well, I encourage you to read Hebrews 11. Because the person that trusts God does it the way God says. And God made it very clear to Cain and Abel with his action to their parents that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. In the lamb that he slayed in order to clothe Adam and Eve. So who can be a priest and come to God in Mosaic uh, regulations? Nobody from Judah. Nobody from Dan. Nobody from Asher. It's got to be from the tribe of Levi. And how is it they have to come? They have to come with the sacrifices he designated. They have to come in the pattern that he prescribed in Mosaic law. And they have to bring it to the place that he appointed. The whole point is, God has given revelation of how an individual is to come to him to be acceptable to him. So of the Samaritans, he said, you have no clue as to what you worship. Because the salvation, the deliverance is out of the Jews. He says, we worship what we know. And that term translated know could be one of two Greek words. One of them means we learn it by experience. And the other term means we learn it from intellectual study and understanding. And that's the word he uses here. And where is it that the Jews would gain the knowledge to know What is God like and what needs to be done in order to worship him acceptably and to be approved by him? It has to be from the revelation or the disclosure that he has made of himself. The other point that I'll allude to here as he's correcting her, and we'll get it back, uh, come back to it at the end, He didn't just say, as I pointed out, salvation is of the Jews or salvation is sourced out of the Jews. Deliverance is out of the Jews. But the deliverance, the salvation is out of the Jews. And notice how the Samaritan woman began to perceive the essence of what was meant when he said the salvation is out of the Jews. We know that when the Messiah comes... Who is, not just what, but who is the deliverer? The one who sets us free, who liberates us from the bondage of sin. It is the one that was pointed to in the revelation or disclosure God had made in his word. Jesus Christ, our Lord.
The salvation is out of the Jews. Acceptance with God flows out of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now the Lord clarifies. He provides a perspective. He says, an hour is coming and now is. So he's indicating there's going to be some changes that are taking place. But he states here, now is. Why would that be? Because the salvation, the Messiah, is there with her. And just like he would tell them that the kingdom is in your midst because the king is present. It isn't saying there isn't going to be something happening in the future that we're looking towards, but he's indicating because I am present. The deliverance, the salvation is here now. It now is of how it is we approach the Father. And to do so, he says, true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to be his worshipers. If we start talking about worship, whether we think of it as individuals or we think of it as corporate, when we understand it as the calling of the church, please notice Jesus never indicates that worship is associated with a principle or an idea. It's a person. It is not so much where, but what. You don't know what you worship. The reality is, those who worship the Father, the person, must worship him in spirit and in truth. And you and I need to understand that if we are seeking to express worship, we are seeking to express worship to a person, to God himself. And a correct understanding of who God is, a correct understanding of how we approach God, is necessary to offer the worship that delights and is acceptable to God. And so he says, God is spirit, and those who worship him, notice the next word, must. In other words, this isn't optional. God does not take pleasure in various forms of sincere expressions on the part of people that we put under the term or category of worship. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. If we look at this reality of worshiping God, if we understand that Jesus Christ is involved in building his church, what is it that we find the Father is doing? The Father seeks such to be his worshipers. 
Now, the first misconception that I need to be sure we address is Jesus is not saying there are certain people in this world who somehow innately worship God the way he wants to be worshiped. Isn't that true? If I read Romans chapter 3, what does it say about all of mankind? How many human beings naturally seek after God? None. How many human beings are righteous in the eyes of God? None. How many human beings are looked upon by God and classified as good? No, not one. When Jesus Christ says the Father seeks such individuals to be his worshipers, he's not saying he's looking over the human race and finding out, oh, Tommy over there is doing it right, but Sally over here is blowing it. The reality is Tommy and Sally and everybody else are all blowing it. But what it is saying is God has a design and an intended purpose for why he is seeking individuals and bringing them to himself. What is God's purpose in giving an unworthy sinner everlasting life? What is God's purpose of working in an individual who is dead in sin and making them a child of God? God's work is to make true worshipers. Those who ascribe to him the glory he so rightfully deserves And sadly, in the church, we fail so often to recognize that central in all that we are and all that we do must be worship. It isn't so much of doing different tasks that he's given the church to do. What is most essential for all of us is to be people who worship God as God deserves to be worshiped. That's the ministry or the work that he is doing in the earth. It is the work of the Spirit of God drawing individuals to himself. It is the work of the Spirit of God taking us who are dead in our sins and making us alive. It is the reality that Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life is bringing us to the Father. And your high calling is to be a worshiper of God. This is not something that I look upon as an addendum to what I'm doing each and every day. It is not merely an hour that we set aside on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening or at whatever time we determine is when we're going to worship. Worship is is critical, crucial, and foundational for the people of God. Of God. God's work is to produce genuine worshipers. And I want to tell you, Satan understands that. And he understands that a lot of people can begin playing church 
for the wrong reasons. There's an account in the Old Testament of a godly man by the name of Job. And Satan was given, or God called Satan's attention to Job. Please remember, God initiated. Have you ever considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on all the earth. And Satan's response is, he worships you because of the prosperity gospel. He worships you because you're a great welfare system. He worships you because of all the gifts you give him. He worships you because he knows that there's something in it for himself. Now think of that for a moment. Because far too often people get together for church to see what they can get out of it. Worship is never designed for what you get out of it. It's for what you give. It's what I give. And the person that is the center of what is to be done isn't a person up here or a group down there. The real audience is God. And he is the one that we are called upon to honor exalt and glorify. Isn't that right? Satan said, he worships you because of all the gifts you've given him. God said, take everything away from him, but you can't touch his person. And he'll curse, he'll curse you face to face. God said, no, go right ahead. What was Job's response? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Worship has nothing to do with what you have or you don't have. Worship has to do with God being worthy of praise regardless of what happens to you. Worship has to do with an understanding that God does all things well. And whether I go through times of deep sorrow or whether I experience an abundance of his blessing, may the name of the Lord be praised. What is the calling of the church? What is your calling as a child of God? It's to be a genuine worshiper of God and that the world will see the difference of what it is to be religious in contrast to what it is to have a relationship with the Heavenly Father. God has called us to give him genuine worship. And my calling as a believer, as a member of the body of Christ, as part of the church that Jesus is building, is to worship God in spirit and in truth. So what is it we need to understand? How can we put this together? 
Well, to worship God in spirit and in truth, and it doesn't say in the spirit as if it has to be motivated by the Holy Spirit, although there's other places that we know that that is to be true. But true worship, genuine worship, is based upon knowledge. And it isn't knowledge of what man perceives it ought to be like. The world is full of religion where man comes up with his ideas of what God's like and how we should approach him. And various churches and other religious groups have all of their rituals to think that somehow in all of their activity, God must be delighted. God is not delighted unless someone comes to him through the salvation, the Lord Jesus, the one who is appointed as the only name by which we can Come to God. It's based on the revelation of what God's like. He's spirit. There's a uniqueness about our God. Certainly he has personality. That's the only reason you have personality. He has abilities that far transcend us as creatures made in the image of the creator. And no wonder that the Bible teaches us that one of the things that we're to do is to grow, not only in the grace, but in the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. Because the more we know of him, the more genuine and appropriate is our expressions of praise and adoration. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. He's good. Man, in times of trouble, begins to think, I didn't deserve this. God's being mean. See, true worship recognizes the essence of who God is, that what he gives or what he takes shows the Father's love so precious. We may trust his purpose wholly. Why? It's his children's welfare solely. God's good. We have to worship him according to knowledge. We have to worship him in the way he said we're to worship him. To recognize that not every emotional expression that we might have would delight or be pleasing or appropriate to him. Jesus made it very clear, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. In other words, our worship has to be in keeping with God's character. Now, part of it is it shouldn't be chaos because our God is not the author of confusion. But the other side of it is it shouldn't be a somber drudgery that we go through because in our God's presence is the fullness of what? Joy forevermore. And we're commanded in the scriptures, rejoice in the Lord. It should be a joyful expression of giving him the honor and the glory and the praise and the adoration that he deserves. God is spirit. I am looking at the essence of what he is, who he is, and all that is associated with him. And my worship is to be reflected of that. To worship him in spirit and in truth. True worship is to be an expression of my inner self. It isn't outward rituals. It's in keeping with what's true of God's character 
that is non-material, that's the essence of your true character, isn't it? Your inner self, your immaterial self. The point he is making is that there is to be a genuine expression from the depth of your being that this is what God is like. This is what God deserves. It's not merely, well, somebody said we're to sing this hymn, and so we mouth the words. What did Christ rebuke the religious leaders for in his own day and quoting from the book of Isaiah? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This isn't meant to be a rebuke. This is meant to say, brethren, why we have been given life in Christ is much, much greater than giving you a ticket out of hell. It is even much greater than conforming you to the image of Christ. It is much greater than a blessed hope to know that I will be in his presence forevermore. It is the fact that you can give him the worship that he so rightfully deserves. The Father is seeking such types of individuals to be his worshipers. And what are those individuals? They're ones who recognize my life is not about me. My life is to be a diadem of praise to my God. And why is that to be so? Because he deserves the glory. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God alone be the glory. My concern as a believer is that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart are acceptable in your sight. O God, my rock and my redeemer. And we can say that we're having a worship service. But sadly, in so many places, just like little children, all people are doing is playing church. And that can happen in fundamental, Bible-believing, Orthodox churches. If as I am gathering with those who profess to be the people of God, I am not coming with a heart that is overflowing to want to praise, honor, exalt, and glorify the great God who has saved me through his dear son, Jesus Christ, my Lord. For all eternity, angelic beings are singing holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And one thing I know to be true about that expression is it's not a program that's being repeated. 
it's an expression of the genuine awe, reverence, adoration that they have of the Lord God Almighty. And my concern must be that what I call worship is not merely some trite expression, but one that is worthy of his great name. Oh, brother and sister in Christ, oh, come. Let us adore him. Father, I thank you for your truth and how I pray that you would so work in each of our hearts that we would be the delight of your heart as ones who give you genuine worship, expressions of our thanksgiving, gratitude, and praise of just how great and good you are in the name of the only one who is worthy, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.